Bigger than cakes. Give me some outside. Yeah, I mean, I was looking forward to it, and then I watched it. And welcome to Bigger Than Capes. I'm Angela, and this week I am joined by the writer of Infidel and The Good Asian, Pornsack Pichetcho. Hello. Hey, how you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you know, it's you know, it's still a it's still an interesting time here in Los Angeles where some people are leaving the houses, some people aren't as much. I'm a, I'm in the not as much sort of category, but we'll see what September brings. Fingers crossed, September will be better. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. In the UK, we're sort of, it's a weird, it's a weird, most people seem to have forgotten, but we'll, we'll see. But it feels like last I checked number, your numbers were going down now. Is that right? Or or am I old? Is that old information? Yeah, they're going going up, but we're not got quite as many people dying in in hospital as we did because the vaccine effect has kicked in a little bit. Got it. Got it. it. Fingers crossed. It won't be too bad a winter. Okay. We shall see. Um, But when is, which is what we're here to talk about, when is the trade of the good Asian out? Because that's. Yeah, no, not far at all. The trade of the good Asian comes out uh, September 22nd in comic book stores and September 28th in bookstores. Excellent. So, and it's the first four issues, am I right? First four issues, yep. Which I found out, because is it going to be a 10 issue? complete story which made me wonder go hang on a second so logically (laughs) i'd just split it into five and five but here we are yeah yeah well one of the reasons why is that we wanted uh, a little bit was based on sort of the you know it it was interesting i think originally um when we you know when we uh, when i developed a book uh we didn't really know how relevant it was going to be sort of current events and all that sort of stuff. And the, um, it's when the book launched. And so when the book launched, because it was so relevant, the decision was let's get it out sooner as opposed to later. And issue four was because originally, I think originally our very, very first sort of conversation is, was let's just do all 10 issues and put them out as sort of one big massive trade. And then the response of the book and sort of what it was talking about was so well received, so timely. It felt like, well, let's not wait till like next year where who knows if these issues were still going to be talked about as much. And um, and let's get sort of people on the ground floor now. And in which case, uh, one to four made a great uh, package to sort of do that. Because from issue five on, and issue five comes out the very next week in comic book stores on, on September 29th, it, we're pretty much sort of, it's, even though we're still six issues away, there's pretty much a straight rocket as we go through things. And so, and so that's why we decided first four and then and four and then six. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I have to say as well, in terms of the story, and I'm going to probably, for anyone who's not read it, I apologize, I'm probably going to mention spoilers. <laughs> So keep that. I'm going to be trying to be as spoiler free as possible, but <laughs> something may creep in there. But yeah, the because the end of issue four was quite shocking. So yeah. it it does it kind of does make sense to sort of have a trade that ends on that event. 
Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't want to spoil anything, but I, I hope people think the end of issue five is just as, and not, if not more, so shocking. And so when you see the read the end of issue five, you'll realize why we didn't want for trade readers specifically. We didn't want to leave like six to seven to eight months yeah. between between sort of the cliffhangers. Well, now I'm intrigued. <laughs> now, <laughs> now I'm intrigued. So let's go back. The first book of yours that I've read, Infidel, came out. I think it's probably longer ago than I thought. It's. <laughs> I tend to think things came out last year, and then someone corrects me and says, "Actually, that was like three years ago." I'm like, was it? <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, pretty much at this point in my whole life, everything seems to have happened last year, and I have to be told, like, oh, no, apparently it, it did not. Either it happened last year or, like, 20 years ago, and, like, there's no in-between for me. Sort of like, no, no. Yeah. No. So that's obviously a different book in some ways because yeah. it's got a very strong horror element to it. Yes. It's very much a horror book. But at the same time, there are certain themes that yeah. sort of are very similar in terms of race and immigration and that sort of thing. So at what point did the Good Asian come into being? What was the what was the genesis behind that one? That's so so interestingly enough, the 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 Good Asian came to being even before the idea for it came to being even before I started writing Infidel. I mean the idea for Infidel came back in 2009, and it was something I was sitting on for a while. Uh, the idea for The Good Asian came before Infidel, but it was one of those things that I just kind of like worked on in the background and researched in the background. And for me, what had happened was um, my, it, I had uh, I had just learned about the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, and um, I, I was looking into sort of my the Chinese part. I, I self-identify as Thai American, but I'm actually Chinese on my uh, on my father's side, and it was a part of my uh, my 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 heritage that I never really looked into sort of very much. And so I, you know, I started looking into it more. And I guess because I am so, you know, my my center of gravity tends to shift towards Americana, tends to shift to American pop culture. That when I was reading about Chinese history, uh, I found myself drawn to the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Immigration Act of 1924 and sort of realized like, wow, I hadn't realized that there were immigration bans towards Asians coming into the country for you know a good portion of its history. And again, because my interests tend to veer towards pop culture, it was fascinating to me because I remember that in the 1930s, you know, Characters like Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto, Mr. Wong Detective were very popular. Um, and it was fascinating to me that these Asian characters were so popular when Asians themselves weren't allowed into the country. And so it so I, that's where I had the start of the idea of, you know, doing one of those, you know, using that archetype of the Asian crime solver, but using sort of the racial lens of today to sort of examine it and to examine what we know about immigration and immigrant, immigrant communities and, and uh, you know, the police uh, to sort of, you know, to, to take a new look at that genre and, and, and align it more closely to, with noir, which I felt, you know, made perhaps a better genre fit than sort of the the almost Agatha Christie type, uh, you know, mysteries that they, you know, that Hercule Poirot sort of mysteries that they, that they uh, had at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's surprising. Cause I, I remember that first issue reading that first issue and going, actually this could, this could almost be now in yeah. terms of the themes in here yeah. with the police and 
the immigrant community and poor Edison sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. And yeah, it's amazing like how little we've come. Yeah. In in nearly a hundred years. It's it's really true. It's really true. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted sort of specific time you know, in the 1930s leading up to sort of World War II, like so much of it, there were so many parallels to what we're going through now, you know, and there were so many parallels in the 30s in terms of what we're going, what we're going through now. So, um, so yeah, so all that stuff seemed to align really well. So it, it, it it checked a bunch of boxes simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely, it does. And I think it, it benefits from being in that period as well, because, you know, noir does sort of, like you say, Agatha Christie you know if you, if you yeah. had him wandering around like Hercule Poirot it probably wouldn't have the same effect right, whereas right. setting it in that period where it's a dark period of you know yeah. corrupt cops and pro you know all the rest of it just after prohibition is yes. a bit more streets sort of you know on the streets that kind yeah. of thing. It, Makes it feel more realistic in a weird yeah, it's a, way. It's a little, yeah, it's a little grittier, you know. That I, I, you know, I think if you look, and I, I am not a history of of noir and, and the crime genre as much as my editor is, but I think he will sort of say that, like noir, you know, the introduction of noir was sort of a reexamining and a repositioning of sort of the Agatha Christie sort of type novels and trying to make, you know, give a more ground level, relatable sort of detective character than, um, than, than, than certainly what Agatha Christie had sort of pioneered with Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot and all, all those great characters. Yeah, because I think as well with those, they're very English to a certain degree. It's very, yeah. there's class stuff that goes on. And yeah, noir tends to be more, it, I always associate, even though it's sort of French in origin, I always associate it more with America for some reason. Totally true. I, it's it's a good it's a good question. I, I feel the same way. Like I feel it is a very like the, the noir detective specifically feels yeah. like such an American you know American archetype. Probably because you know it feels like it, the I actually don't know sort of what the first European noir detective is, but certainly you know. Sam Spade and, and Philip Marlowe, you know, are such archetypes for, for, for noir and their American characters. Yeah. Did you, did you read much of, you mentioned Charlie Chan, obviously, but you're very familiar with those guys. Did yeah. you also, were you also familiar with sort of the noir with, you know, Philip Spade, uh, sorry, Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade, those kind of yeah. guys? Yeah, I mean, part of like, I think it's part of the reason why I, I like working on what I work with, work on is that it, sometimes it just becomes excuses to like, reread <laughs> stuff you like, or, you know, read stuff you always said you wanted to read, but you're never going to. So like part of working on this book, you know, I got to read, you know, all the Philip Marlowe stuff. I read Sam Spade stuff. I read a lot of Continental Op, which is also a big influence on this. Uh, some Lou Archer mysteries and, you know, uh, Easy Rollins. And there was a bunch. So it, it, it borrows from a lot of sort of like, pulp detectives it it does feel like there's been a lot of research gone in because you even have a historical consultant yeah which yeah we do you don't get many comics with historical yeah. consultants <laughs> how on earth do you find a historical consultant for this well, sort of know, thing it, it's funny so for me the thing about uh the subject matter like if you're looking at 1930s Chinatown and what the shadow of the Immigration Act affected their daily lives, there's like not much, barely little written about it. So you kind of have to triangulate between a bunch of different texts and a bunch of different sources. And 
because I felt I was really out over my skis, I don't think I could have had the confidence. I knew I wouldn't have the confidence to write it unless I had someone for all intents and purposes checking my math to make sure I didn't go wrong. And so early on in this process, as I was thinking about it, uh, I was trying to rack through my Rolodex of friends in terms of like who might, you know, be able to point me in the right direction. And my friend Don, uh, Don Lee too, who's a professor herself, you know, she deals a lot with sort of Asian American studies. So I sort of, you know, gave her a call. I think I actually like, I was, I, I think I probably visited her the same time. I took my very first research trip to Angel Island and, uh, and we got dinner and she was just like, oh, I can think of some people because she's sort of in that academic community. She was able to bring me to Grant Din, who has been fantastic and, and, and essential in, in, to the book. And yeah, and so, so and, and he provided me, he be, became that sort of last line of defense uh, so that I could, so that I could make, so that I could make the book with the confidence that, that, that it needed to sort of be, be, be done with. Because I really like the fact that you have in the back of each issue, you go through the history of the Chinese community and all the immigration stuff, because literally all I knew was, well, there were Chinese immigrants in San Francisco. That was was my level. And to see all this extra bit, it's been a bit, it's been very eye opening because I had no idea that at one point, because America was land of the immigrants, and at yeah. one point they were actually stopping Chinese immigration, was something I had no idea happened. I'm glad. I'm glad it was educational. Like you know, it's funny because to me, all of this and all this stuff with the good age and all the stuff I do is very much an extension of comics and extension of genre. So like, I'm just a person who I've learned so much from comics, and so and so a lot of you know, a lot of the back matter to me is you know, the extension of what, you know, Ed Brubaker does sort of in his books, but it's also, you know, what Alan Moore did at the end of From Hell, but really it goes all the way back to like, you know, old 60s where you have like flash comics and there were flashbacks at the at the end and you like, you learn a little bit of science from all those. So like, I've always sort of like, I, you know, probably embarrassingly have learned a lot about the world from comics. And so I just thought, oh, well, let's just do a more adult version of that. Let's do a more specific version of that. It works really well. Um, yeah, I like being able to learn things from comics. Yeah, I, it's all I do. It's all I do. So, and I think it's a lot easier to sort of have something rather than just here's a here's a textbook or here's a web page that has all this information. It's just a, a more dynamic way of imparting that information to someone. I hope so. I hope so. Like you know, for me, like it is something that I do get out of the reading experience when I have a comic. Like I, my concern is I never want the reader to feel like I'm feeding them vegetables, but like, I do hope it's done in the spirit of fun of the, like I do want it to be fun. So, uh, so that is, you know, I want it to be informative, but I want it to be into inform in a fun way. So even if like you're one of those readers, is like, ah, too many words. I don't want to deal with like, it, it, it hopefully is set like you can hopefully appreciate the comics and the story separate from all that. But then if you are very invested in the story, you can get into all that. And hopefully that is its own sort of sense of sense of fun, depending on depending on your tastes. That's definitely my sense of fun. So <laughs> I'm that uh, kind but- of I'm that kind of a reader, because one thing that did surprise me was, I mean, even though it is quite bleak at points and there's murders and it's quite noir. I think there is some sort of humor in there. It's it's from the way sort of we've got Edison's narration and yeah, there's still humor in it. 
I'm glad. I'm glad. You never know how much of that stuff lands. So, but, uh, but yeah, I think there is like, I think Edison is so uh, jaded and, you know, that, that there is a little bit of a deadpanness that kind of run that, that runs through it, that, that pops up occur, occur occasionally. Yeah. I, I think he's, he's a really interesting protagonist. Um, how much of yourself do you see in Edison? There's a question. There's a lot. I mean, I feel like, you know, when you're writing, your characters are different versions. You know, they refract different versions of you no matter what. So there's a lot of me that goes into Edison. Um, you know, I've, I I maybe would say uh, Edison is me on a bad day, maybe. <laughs> Edison is me. Uh, on a day where I'm not feeling my oats. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, but there's a lot. There's a lot of, you know, his frustration. It's interesting. It's interesting what your characters teach you and what your characters can teach you about yourself. Um, Edison is such an angry character, but he keeps his anger sort of, ta- you know, under control. I don't really, he became a good way to exercise a lot of my anger that I don't think I realized I had. And so when I'm writing Edison, it's constantly an education of like, oh, I'm a lot angrier than I thought I was. And, and so it's been good to have that as a good to be able, and, and just have that as an outlet. Yeah, just a bit of therapy, just just yeah. like that. Because it must be, because it is very much first person. He's there most of the time yeah. and we see things from most of his point of view. So you must be in his head more than you might yeah. be if you were writing from a third person point of view. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And it, it is funny when, now that you mentioned that because having got, now I, I've, I've just recently finished writing sort of the whole book and the book is one that gets easier and easier to write primarily because I think you are launched into such a dark world sort of in the beginning. And so, you you know, when you are surrounded by all those facts and how little the world has changed and all that sort of stuff, like it, it can be kind of depressing and it can be, you can kind of bring it down. Um, and, and again, the work I hope is to just sort of keep that fun, you know, you know, in, in the spirit of noir, keep it, keep it fun. But the thing I actually do enjoy is as the book progresses, um, it gets easier to write because I'm not going to say the story gets more hopeful, but the more Edison sees the world, the more Edison starts to change, the more Edison starts to react to the world. He, you know, the, the only place for him to go is to see things that he didn't see before. And that is exciting. And, and that, you know, I, I think part of where Edison starts in the beginning of the story is seeing that there are no options in, in the world. And, and as he goes, he sees, he sees options. They might not be the best options. They might not be, you know, they, they almost always come at a price, but, but walking him as he sees options has been, has made the book an easier place for me to sort of write it from. Yeah. So it's, it's less of the hopeless nurse, but it's not, it's not exactly hopeful because that would imply good options that are very positive outcomes, but it's not as hopelessness. It's not as hopeless as it first seemed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think to me, that was always, that's the appeal of noir, right? It's like these dark worlds, but like these detectives are these white knights, but because it's such a dark world, though, you know, they, they can't be that white, you know, they can't, they, they, they can't be that pure. And so one of the things you get is whether it's Philip Marlowe, who, despite how every, how bad everything gets, he, he wants to know the truth. And there's something noble in this character who just wants to know the truth, no matter how bad sort of everything gets and no matter 
what the what the costs will be and i think it's a, it's it, edison is of that bre- of that mold of no matter how dark the world is the fact that he's still going it, despite all of it and he doesn't give up is you know it, and, and and he realizes in the course of the story why that is um is i think part of where the hopefulness of the book comes from and yeah. the, the hopefully the appeal the the romantic heroism that's kind of also part of more yeah, because it's certainly it's, it's these guys with a strong moral fiber, yeah. even though that fiber does get dragged through the mud. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Um. So thinking thinking about a dark world, um, let's talk about the art because the yeah. art really helps set the whole tone. So, yeah. did you get a choice of artist, or was it like we'll find you an artist, or how did how did you find? Oh, I mean, we definitely had a choice. We definitely searched long and hard and wide for for Alex. You know, Alex Tefenji is the is the artist on the book. For for anyone who doesn't know, he's I should have amazing. Said his name, but That's I wasn't good. sure how to pronounce his surname. I'll be totally honest. good. That's why I totally didn't good. Say it. Totally good. Um, and yeah, and so, I mean, we would search long and hard for for Alex. Um, I wanted an Asian artist primarily because. You know, there were so many details that you'll see in sort of Asian households and that, that are different from sort of Western households that I just didn't want to micromanage. So it was just easier. I, you know, I was hoping for someone with a similar background to me in the sense of they've been around enough Eastern households that they didn't know, they didn't need, no, Eastern slash Western households that they didn't need uh, me to be like there be like, well, actually, it's like this or actually it's like like that. And, and also too, like, you know, there's, and I also wanted someone, I feel like you get a lot of artists who work in that mold, but, uh, you know, they are influenced less by the real world and more by manga or, or anime or stuff like that, which is fine. But I didn't want it to be sort of like a pastiche of, a, of something else. So, uh, you know, so it was great. We, I mean, we looked forever. So, you know, it, every, it was, uh, it's actually really gratifying. So many artists that we, that we first looked at, you know, they were, they weren't available. You know, I, I think I want to say like 10 years ago in, in the dark ages when I was <laughs> editing comics, you know, there were artists who Asian artists who might be slightly manga influenced. Um, they had a hard time sort of finding work and it feels like now that is no longer the case. Like they were all sort of booked up and thank God they were because Alex for so many reasons was just like the perfect person to, to draw this book, but we didn't know who he was and he wasn't available before the time where we knew who he was because he was writing a, he was drawing a book called Outpost Zero. And the thing that was fantastic about Alex has got such a fascinating story where, you know, he's in his late thirties, like early forties and um, sort of, you know, I think in his mid thirties, he, he had grown up thinking he was, uh, he had grown up thinking uh, shoot, I'm trying to remember. Uh, like he was part African. God, now, now of course I'm blanking. I, maybe I think he thought he was like part Lebanese. I, I, I don't quote me on that. But basically, in the his mid 30s, his his mother kind of told him like, "Oh, you're adopted, and your your father is Asian." And so, at, in his mid 30s, he found out he was Asian. And then all these things in his life kind of made sense. And um, and and he was already traveling around the world, you know, with his wife. And so him and his wife had always thought about moving to Southeast Asia. But when he found out he was, you know, Asian, he didn't specifically, he was just like, well, Vietnam makes the best sense. And so they ended up living in Vietnam so he can get a little closer to his roots and learn more about it. So <clears throat> when 
you know, after, as he was finishing about Post Zero, he met with his friend Cliff Chang, who's a mutual friend of ours. And, you know, me and my editor, Will Dennis, were talking to Cliff about looking for an artist and if he knew anybody. And Cliff was like, yeah, I'll keep my eyes out. And so Cliff was talking to Alex at this party at New York Comic Con. And I think it was like the last New York Comic Con. Well, now, no, there's a New York Comic Con yeah. like coming up, but like the last New York Comic Con before the world shut down. And, um, and Alex was telling a story about how he's living in Vietnam. He's trying to figure out what Asian being Asian means to him because it's such a new thing in his life. And, and, and Cliff was just like, oh my God, I had the perfect book for you and introduced it to us. And, you know, ever since it's like, oh, there's all this like synchronicitous timing. And that's kind of like the amazing thing I find about comics is there's these, I think so many creative teams I know have certain stories about how like, you know, these people, that you would never think you have a connection to, you end up having this, you know, mystical connection to. I remember when I met Aaron Campbell, you know, um, for Infidel, you know, you know, that was sort of my first book. It wasn't totally catch as catch can, but like there were so many um, things that the art needed to be that uh, for a while, it's just like, does this artist even exist? Like, I don't even know if the artist exists, who can draw the things I need for him to draw. And and so, and Aaron came around and could do all those things. And then when we talked to each other, we had like the exact sense, self, same sense of horror and what our tastes were and what our influence were. And that was just kind of amazing, you know, because I'd never met him and never knew him before that. I love how life throws up those yeah. weird connections and things yeah. just all slot into place because, yeah. The, the art just just works and clearly yeah. Alex himself has the background that fits perfectly with the book yeah. as well. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it does become this thing that I wonder that, you know, <clears throat> because everything we do is an extension of ourselves, that like finding the right creative team ends up finding the right people. If they're going to reflect something that you worked on so passionately, it makes sense that there's something personal to them that reflects a part of you as well. So, uh, but yeah, it's a magical, it's a magical experience. It is. Yeah. It's, it's so weird, but yeah. so good at the same time. Because yeah. yeah. I think that's really good about the art because yeah, it just completely fits. And it seems like there's a lot of details in there that I'm never yeah. going to get into yeah. a certain degree. Culturally, it's just, it's just going to go over my head, but it just works. And I'm sure that, you know, Asian readers will appreciate having those little details in there. Yeah, it's been great to, you know, it's it's been great to sort of see the people sort of pick up on it. And and we get like so micromanagey on little things. I remember this one time um and 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 Will my our editor was it was just like I I could feel him shaking his head over through the computer as he was doing it. But um but I remember this I think it was one issue uh we realized that like, oh, the characters, and you it's such a tiny thing. It's the tiniest little thing of all. But we realized that there was an issue where the characters didn't take their shoes off when they walked into, walked into. Ah. And so, so they had their shoes on in the rooms and we're like, they wouldn't do that. And so, and so it's, such a, it's literally just an alteration of a line. It literally is just that. But we're like, oh, well, we should change that. But, you know, and, and, like it's, and it's not like there are any panels because it's not an important detail. There's no panels in the issue of them taking off their shoes. So it literally is just showing that like, oh, they're not shoes that they're socks and just changing all the feet, the, the, the silhouette of the feet in, in that way. But, uh, but it was one of those things like, oh, we got to change that. And, me, and meanwhile, I was just like, you're going to go through the entire issue and just like do this, <laughs> like, like draw a straight 
slide, as well as draw an angular line over these tiny feet. But he's just like, yeah, do what you're gonna do. Like, I get it, I get it. And so, so yeah, so he's good about that stuff. It's it's the little details that show you care, though, isn't it? It's it's right. yeah, it's it's good. It's good. I like that there is that attention to detail. <laughs> I'm now gonna be looking at the feet now. I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna have to reread and just look at the feet now and just see: yeah. are they wearing shoes? Are they indoors? Are they wearing shoes? And <laughs> just watch. I'll have forgotten one. But but the my whole thing is that you know if Hark is with like. If Hark is with like the American cops as he's coming in, he doesn't take his shoes off. But he's but if he's basically meeting his Asian character, the Chinese characters like as equals, then he would take their sh- shoes off and the thing. So sometimes I like I think there's a scene where you will see him. I think there I think in the scene with O'Malley in the first issue, he does have his shoes on, sort of in that scene, because he's with an American cop. But then later, I know in issue three. And just watch, there'll be like a panel we forgot. But like in, in, but in issue three uh, with him and Lucy, we were just like, oh no, both of their shoes should be off. So like, let's make sure all their shoes are off in this issue. That is excellent. Like, I'm gonna, <laughs> I am going to have to go and, and look at that now again, which is, yeah, that's great. <laughs> little things, little things. But yeah, I think it's interesting because he's kind of, because he is in between two worlds and I like how he is interacting with the white cops differently to the Chinese community, but he's never comfortable doing either of them at points. Yes, yes, 100%, 100%. And and that I think, you know, hopefully is one of the appeals of the character. And I, I, I also hope to... That there's something that not just Asian Americans or Chinese Americans, but sort of any immigrant American or any slash hyphen American can kind of relate to in that of sort of being a product of both worlds and trying to see what the Venn diagram that overlaps, that which is where you live, what that means and how far that extends on both ends. Yeah, it's an interesting way to explore it through, you know, the cop who is also... He has this background and he had, you know, a fairly, he had a weird upbringing, let's put it that way, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, it's hopefully just taking, you know, and this is what I love about genre, what genre does so well. It's taking things that are internal and externalizing them and heightening them to the point where you can kind of see there are details of it that you that you can see a little clearer because it, everything is is heightened and, and externalized, but hopefully not mel- melodramatized. Yeah, because it could go too far. It never does. It it, it all feels very just. I'm gonna say I don't want to say normal drama because that just sounds <laughs> weird, but not melodrama. Yeah, not melodrama. Because yeah. yeah. that's. I mean, I find it interesting because it it encompasses. There's a lot that's going on. There's a lot. Yeah. It's one of the things I pride Suzanne uh, is like. I think that for money, you get about 50% more comic than your normal sort of comic. There's a lot of compressed storytelling in there. And it's done that primarily because I want very much want to give you the sensation like you're reading a 30s pulp novel, but in comic book form. And so and so as a result, you know, there's a little bit more narration. The word count might be a little bit more than I would use in a regular comic. But but you just want to give the illusion. And sort of for Infidel, since you read Infidel, the same way, and it's how I always sort of, the analogy I always use, the goal there was to make it look like you're watching a horror movie, but still very, you know, distinctly reading a comic. And so I wanted to take that with the pulp novel and sort of do do that here. 
It definitely is because I've I have read I raided my grandfather's pulp novels. Okay. <laughs> oh okay. boy! So I have read the odd one. He was into Mike Hammer. We won't go there. Oh nice. Um, okay. So and it. reading that, it does read perfectly like a. It does. It's just you know pulp novel in visual form. It definitely cool, cool. does that. Cool. Um, and yeah, the way that it starts off with what you think is just a really simple case of a missing girl, and then it's really not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got organized crime, you've got a yeah. serial killer, you've got right. you've got this, you've got all of this other stuff. It's I really like that it's that dense. Cool. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> that it's got all that going on. Was that hard to sort of plot out, just having Yeah. All those oh my different God, yeah. balls. Because there's a lot of balls you've got to juggle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually what I do is I, I, I have a uh, it's kind of sort of my baseline. And then what I like to do is when I get into the issues, sort of play with things a little bit. But I did have to like set up a, like a spreadsheet. And so and I was just like, OK, I throw this ball up in this issue. Where do I catch it? And all those kind of things and just trying to track to and hopefully no thread goes, you know, and hopefully all the threads get tied back in eventually uh by the end of it but it's my concept here is like oh maybe i missed one or maybe i didn't tie it up well enough and they and and they're gonna feel you know dissatisfied with all this yeah because i'm certainly there's certain ones that are more interesting than others but Mm -hmm. at the same time i want to know how they all resolve so (laughs) yeah it's like i really want to know what that one but also that one and that one and that yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. so i can imagine that was a very crowded spreadsheet (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. It's one of the reasons why the book is as long as it is. Yeah, because 10 issues, because it's almost like it's a mini-series, almost, yeah. at 10 issues, yeah. whereas traditionally sort of, well, Infidel was five, wasn't it? Infidel was yeah. five, yes, it's yeah. twice of, of, of Infidel, yeah. Yeah, but it, need, it needs to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does, it does. But just where I think I know where it's going, it. No, it just throws a complete curveball out. Oh, I hope that continues to be the case. We'll see. Um, but what I also like is that you sort of expand out into that. It's not ju- you don't just have the focus on the single character, even though he is our point of view character. There's also is it issue three where we have Lucy yeah. and we delve into her life a little bit yeah. and see. I really liked that. I Good. really enjoyed that was that something you wanted to show sort of show a bit more of the community from somebody else's point of view yes absolutely absolutely um you know hark is a is a the perfect type character i thought to sort of explore chinatown with because he's these new eyes but the problem i found from that is from his outsiders there's so much he wasn't going to know about that world and so if that it became uh you know interesting it became important to me to introduce lucy who looks at the world from a completely different vantage point you know she's a woman in sort of 19 in 1930s chinatown and you know she grew up there that's all that's really all she knows about the world and so you know there was a certain detail about chinatown at the time that i couldn't get through get to through hark's eyes and and so lucy became sort of paramount to 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 exploring all of that yeah because she has a very different story but she's she's really i really like lucy as a character 
good. Are we going to see more of Lucy? Please tell me yes. Yes, we will see more of Lucy. Hopefully not in the way that you expect, but you will see more of Lucy. She's a, we are all on the team big fans of hers. So she's definitely one of those characters that were introduced and kind of took on a life of her own. That's really good. Because I think that's one of the other things is like with noir, women tend to play traditionally a certain role within yes. that genre. You've got sort of the femme fatale or yeah. you've got the woman who comes in distress. And it's yeah. nice to have a character who kind of doesn't fit into those boxes. I'm glad. I'm glad. You know, it's certainly what we're trying, certainly what we're going for. You know, like, you know, uh, the noir is definitely guilty of sort of the Madonna Hork sort of complex. And so part of, you know, writing any female characters in noir is to a certain extent, it's not quite a noir if you don't have a femme fatale, but then you don't want to fall into the traps of that. So it, 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 specifically with your female characters, I feel in noir, you're, you're walking a tightrope. And so, you know, we'll see how I do by the end of the, <laughs> in the book, you know, but it was very aware that this is a tightrope. Uh, the, the, the biggest challenge I think in noir is writing your female characters because like, as you mentioned, the genre has a history of not treating them the, the way they deserve to be treated and and so when you're trying to do certainly what i'm trying to do which is echo all the tropes and sort of modernize them and twist on them a little bit uh it, the, the trap can be to end up doing what you know end up committing the same mistakes that the original material did yeah well you've you've certainly avoided that there good i'm glad because there's other stuff as well is and I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of nearly get into spoilers. Um okay. but we do have let's let's say a gay character. Shall we shall okay. we throw that out there? Yes, yes. And that again, obviously, nineteen thirties Chinatown. It's not a great place for that. No, of. it's not a great place for that. You know, and, and I think it's part of like, you know, that's another thing that we sort of had to be sort of very careful very careful with. And and honestly, like I'm I'm fascinated by, you know. A, a better scholar of you know queer literature and queer cinema and and crime I was we'll, can, can talk more about sort of the history of 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 queer people sort of in noir and in crime because you know there are queer characters in the Maltese Falcon and you see more of that in the novels than you do in the in the in the film but e but even the film it's alluded to uh it's just not expanded upon like they didn't do away with it entirely from what I remember and so so again it's a little bit of you know in, Acknowledging that history, uh, acknowledging those characters, portraying them with sensitivity, portray you, you never want to set the conversation back. And, but at the same time, you still want to uh, you still want to uh, be surprising. And so, you know, it's funny when I think about the the tight ropes of of the book. That is that aspect is definitely one of them as well. Yeah, it's because like I say there is the expectation of the genre and the period, but at the same time, it it's a modern book. Yeah, because it's you know, it, like like we've mentioned before, it, it does directly show sort of things that are going on today. So you don't want to sort of sensationalize something. Yeah. You want to be quite sensitive to it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so far, it's it's yeah. working out well. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Thank you. So let let's talk about serial killers. <laughs> okay, let's talk about serial killers. Let's talk about some serial because there's. I mean, there's some quite brutal murders in there. <laughs> okay, I'm glad. I'm glad they work. <laughs> They're very brutal. Was that 
was that something did that sort of say yeah this guy's gonna have an let's go into spoilers an axe is involved at certain points yes <laughs> an axe is involved you know an axe is such quintessential sort of like a, a hatchet specifically is so specific chinatown like chinatown enforcers were called hatchet men because they use sort of these hatchets and these axes so that was you know definitely something i i want i wanted there and also i think too when you're doing sort of a contemporary noir and i learned this uh trick from being a fan of garth ennis and garth who is a fantastic horror writer of himself is also a fantastic dramatic writer and one of the things you'll see in a lot of his work but specifically his war stories is he'll use just a dash of horror at times and it so effectively transcends the genre a little bit it makes the genre feel a little bit more dangerous you know these these uh, tropes these moves sort of in war stories that you kind of expect to be there hit at a more they cut a little bit deeper uh, when Garth does them, and it's because he's he's flexing a little bit of his horror muscles there, just to make it cut a little closer to the bone. And I've always been a fan of how he does that, and and really took it as educational. So coming from a horror experience in my last book as well, that was something that was I sort of kept in mind. I was working that like just the right amount of dash, like you can't if you exaggerate it too much, then it turns into Batman. But it but just the right am- dash of, of of flexing a horror muscle there can make the the action and the crime so, um, so uh, you know, so much more personal in, in a way. Like I was just talking to, uh, I was on this podcast and we had watched uh, The Green Room for, for the podcast, which was a great movie and I love that movie. But one of the things the director sort of said was there's a certain amount of gore in that movie. And for him, the reason why there's, a, there's gore in that movie, because when you see that gore, you understand why the characters are motivated to, changed so drastically from the people that they were it was that sensation that that watch seeing the same horror that they saw made it clear why they you know could turn from like punk rock teenagers to pretty much killers in the span of like of a half hour because you see like oh my god this guy's hand this guy got his hand almost chopped off and and you feel it it works so well and so and so there's a little bit of that too in my sort of you know, just flexing a little horror there. It really helps motivate, like, this is how dangerous things are. This is how fur- much further you have to go. You know, it, it, it works. It, yeah, it, I like using little horror techniques here and there um, to, to, uh, to help push the story forward. Because it definitely has that impact, because I found cool. that those deaths really sort of hit hard. It's almost like a, wait, what happened? It's like when you're watching a horror movie and then things are going along fine and then suddenly someone gets speared with something or yeah. gets their head cut off, you know, something dr- yeah. drastic happens. And then, yeah, so when you're reading it and then this guy's coming along with his hatchet and then yeah. suddenly there's, you know, there's a murder. And I think it hits harder because of that horror element, partly yeah. because it's almost like you weren't expecting it, particularly with noir where traditionally you know, it's guns and, you know, alleyways and that kind of thing. And then to have this guy come into public areas at some point and just have that murder just gives it an impact that I don't think it would have if it was just a guy in a, you know, even just wandering down a shadowy alley and then something happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and again, that's the, you know, especially with the first issue when they find the body, you are meant to seem like, wow, this is an important death. This this is an you know it's a character you don't know at all but you know that everything has changed once 
you know, it's a white person dead in Chinatown. Everything is a lot more dangerous than it just being sort of a body there. But it's a character that you don't know. So, and, and you want, don't want that to hit on just an intellectual level. You want to hit that on a visceral emotional level. So by dipping into just a little bit of horror there, you feel that, oh God, things have, everything is different now. And then, and because you're already feeling that, then you can unpack sort of like the, the intellectual and cognitive reasons why everything is different. But hopefully just emotionally, you realize, oh shit, everything is different now. Yeah. Like, okay, that's really changed things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, because there's a lot, like, I was not expecting to see the sister crop up. I, oh. I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> Good, I'm glad that I'm glad that we kept you guessing on that one. Hopefully yeah. we will continue to do that. I think you, yeah, I definitely think you will. Because there were, there were development, I think throughout every single development, I've gone, I'm not sure I saw that coming, or I think I've got okay. it figured out, and it's not the way I thought. I'm glad, I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad. It is always a game to sort of try it as much as you can, anyway. Try to keep one step ahead of the of your reader, and well, at the same time, again, not necessarily. It genre is a tricky thing. You want to stay ahead of your reader and subvert them, but uh, you don't want it to come out of left field either. Otherwise, so they'll feel cheated. So it's it's doing those things that feel surprising, but when you look back, you realize like, oh, there's a there there is a trail of breadcrumbs. We might not have presented all of the trail to you. But, you know, but there was enough there for there to be a trail to get you to the points where, where you're at. Yeah, because it's it's interesting because like some of the stuff like about his mum and the situation that he was in as a kid, that seems to crop up on several occasions in parallel to the fact that Ivy's gone missing. And yes. that's that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, yeah, it's, it's, it's very... but yeah, no, it's just, it's just a very satisfying way to read a plot. <laughs> glad, I'm very glad. Um, so let's let's so we've we've talked about the actual art, mm-hmm. um, the coloring also really yeah. sets the tone. Yeah, Lee Lowridge has been a friend for a really long time, and he's like one of the best colorists in the biz. You, I think, all throughout comics, you will hear stories of Lee like saving an editor's ass by just like you know doing something amazing in such a small amount of time and turning it around like lickety split. Um, but he's so good, and I'm actually really proud. I actually think The Good Asian is one of Lee's best works. I think it ranks up there. My other favorite book that Lee's done is Deadly Class, and he kind of set the, the the coloring style in Deadly Class, and I do think that good his work on Good Asian ranks up there with uh, his work on Deadly Class. I'm such a fan of Lee, not just, as, you know, his work, but also him as a person. Yeah. He's a barrel of fun, if you get him. He's a madman, but he's so much fun. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, because I think it because it, comics are a very visual medium yeah and and so color is so important when yeah. comics have not all comics have color i tend to prefer when they have color but that's <laughs> yeah. personal preference but yeah it definitely helps as a reader when you have that good a color work and it just helps yeah. guide you through 
Yeah. And the letterer you've worked with on Infidel. Yes, I did. We met we met on Infidel. I'm never letting him go ever since. And <laughs> since uh Jeff Powell is a letterer, he's fantastic. He's got such a great design sense. Uh, you know, I think actually Will Dennis, who like edits has edited a ton of books, you know, he gave his blessing that like the trade for for the good for the first volume of Good Agent is one of the most beautiful trades he's sort of ever seen. And and that's just like Jeff puts in 150% on everything that he does. And you see that in the lettering and you see that in the design work. And he's one of those people and something, it's something I definitely respect a lot where you don't necessarily see all the work he puts in on the page. And by that, I mean, he gives it a, he gives design a lot of thought. So things will be minimalist, but it will communicate things so well, you know, it's on so many different levels, you know, whether it's using different balloon shapes and slightly different fonts, which I don't, which I didn't even realize, but there's a slightly different font when the languages are different. Uh, balloon shapes and different fonts to do that. You know, the fact that I, one of the things I love is I love how big the lettering is because I'm sadly getting older. And so when I read comics now, just the, the font seems to go smaller and smaller. And so I love that, you know, and I, I also feel like too, I've always been a fan of that sort of John Workman style sort of balloons. And so, and while our lettering isn't sort of Workman large, um, he he has done this very nice thing in, in these very dense pages of having lettering that it that that still feels like chunky, which I I just love. I just love the way the lettering looks on the page. I I agree. I agree. It definitely again because there's so much happening and there's so yeah. much stuff about the characters and all the rest of it. It is important to have that lettering to sort of follow, yeah. and it does. It works really yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just great. Just absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So thinking thinking about how timely this book is. Yeah. Um I mean what fascinated me was even just in that first issue where you've got the cops doing what mm -hmm. cops have been doing in yeah. the present day. Um did you sort of was that in your mind when you were writing it or was that sort of something that came in later? You were like, Oh actually this is really relevant right now or was it something that sort of you had at the time and didn't realize that it was going to be particularly with the police officers in that first issue it is a really good question I think it's hard for me to remember I, I think it was something that I knew was going to be relevant I don't think I realized how relevant it was going to be but I did think that certainly you know police brutality you know, well, I'm trying to remember, but I think that was sort of part of my my initial pitch of just like, you know, it was going to be one of the things that was so reminiscent of sort of what it what it is today. And I have to say too that like for this book, I didn't want to be guilty of editorializing, so I tried to stick to sort of whatever precedent was. Um, and so it was all the things I could find either historically or what's happening now. And but but because of that. And because of the way this kind of stuff never hit this historical record, I am positive that everything you see in the book is a lot nicer than what actually happened sort of at the time. Yeah. There are just no records of that. But it is, I, I have a hard time believing at a time where there were, you know, 1930s, there was no such thing as Miranda rights, you know, that the cops would be comparable today. They had to have been worse. But part of the 
But part of the rules I had sort of set for myself was if I couldn't find sort of a historical source for it, I wouldn't incorporate it. And so and so you, the, the violence is there is sort of very reminiscent today. And while it is depressing to show that um, nothing has changed, you know, it, it does sort of feel like it must have been much, much worse. Like, you know, the, the way I always looked at it. And if you actually look at, uh, you know, at, 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 at the history at the time, they will the history of Chinatown will say that by the 1930s, the cops and Chinatown had a very good relationship. And um, but and this is where the book takes takes issue with that a little bit. Less than a generation of cops, like, you know, I think only 30 years previous, they were taking axes to residences in Chinatown, looking to the doors of residents in Chinatown looking for the tongs. And so when I hear that, oh, in less than 30 years later, some of those cops are now in a very good relationship, that to me feels like revisionist history. Like what we know now about police reform and how long it takes to actually reform police, there's no way it could have been all roses during that during that time. And so, but I, at the same time though, I wanted to stick to his, you know, I wanted to stick to what I could prove and what was in history. And so that's why sort of the, the, the police violence is there, looks like the way it does, because there's at least records of that. Um, but, uh, but, but yes, but I, I actually do think it was actually worse. And I'm waiting for a, the book to come out to talk about how naive my sort of depictions of the police at the time were, uh, because I just wasn't able to find it. Yeah, I mean that—that's the thing. Is history is written by the victors. Yeah, and this is a community that, like you say, there's no sources, and yeah. it's just really, it's really difficult to extrapolate yeah. from not a lot of evidence. It's, yeah, it's a exactly. shame because, like you say, odds are it it yeah. was worse. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And again, it is about sort of this community that was invisible at the time, like so many immigrant communities are, were and are. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's really important. Because, like I say, I had absolutely no idea yeah. that there was all this going on. You know, you just assume that, yeah, oh, there's a Chinatown in San Francisco and yeah. everyone's coming in and it's all fine and good. Um, and, yeah, to actually go back and look at the history of it and go, wait a minute, they had, like, detention centres? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, suddenly it in doing something like that in drawing attention to the historical it's also drawing attention to the modern day and then you start to look at like you say communities in the modern day and go ah actually this is not a new thing yeah exactly exactly and hopefully like you know it just reminds you the concept of you know there are certain communities that are in vogue about talking about sort of what happens to them but there are a lot that aren't and so hopefully it does sort of prime you to sort of think like well what's happening to this immigrant community that we don't talk about and what, what's what's going on there yeah yeah it's it's definitely it gives you a lot of food for thought on a lot of different levels yeah yeah hopefully thank you yeah it does well it does for me i can't okay, speak I to everybody that. else who's read it but hopefully, i appreciate that hopefully they're the same <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. So to wrap it up, you've got four issues done. Have you plotted out the whole ten issue? Yeah, yeah. I actually, as of now, as of a couple of weeks ago, I've now written all of the issues, and 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 that stuff evolves. Sort of, you know, art comes in, and I'll rewrite stuff to sort of help sort of fit in the art, and 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 all. And 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 it's one of the great things about reading this serial, re- releasing the book serialized is, you know, the book has a lot of smart readers who. Um, 
you know, offer not necessarily offer, though they do offer theories, but offer very intriguing insights. And and occasionally, I will read a review or read a comment that make me realize, like, oh wow, they're actually I could probably go in a little deeper than I than I did. And and hopefully, the book is structured in such a way that you know a lot of times. One of the things I find with story and plot, like if, if you set up the right moves, and this is what I love about comics, you can dig in a little deeper sort of in the lettering about nuances. And the the book has a lot of smart readers. And so a lot of them have opened my eyes being of just like mentioning certain things and realize like, oh, wow, there actually is an opportunity to talk, to go into a little deeper here that resonates with the themes of the book and all that stuff. And that's part of the fun, I think, of, of, of writing comics. I really like that. The fact that even though it's sort of written, you can still react yeah. to the real-time conversation that readers have been having about certain aspects. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, and that was definitely something that, you know, I picked up and learned in Infidel because Infidel, it was an interesting thing. We were doing this book that talks about race at a time where the country and the world was having a very public discussion about race. And so it, you know, the, the book was plotted out and the book was sort of drawn, but as the as the conversation was evolving, we could work to reflect that conversation a little bit more in the degrees that it paralleled what was happening in our story. And, and, you know, that is the case for the good Asian as well. You know, the thing I do sort of find exciting is that a lot of the themes of Asian American literature and Asian American film, they're still being defined sort of right now. It's still an ongoing conversation. And so this book, you know, gets to be part of that conversation. It gets to react to that conversation. And so the conversation informs it. As, and hopefully at some point the book informs the conversation. Yeah, which is which is really cool because it, it, it gets all like it one informs the other. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it does get to be a little bit of feedback loop that way. Yeah, that that's yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so ten issues are done. So the first trade is out on September the twenty second in yes. comic book stores, and yes. September the twenty eighth. Yes. Let's get that right in the normal bookstores. The yes. normal bookstores, not exactly. The the exactly. line between the two gets blurry. It gets blurry and blurrier. Yes, it gets blurry and blurrier. Time gone. So I can say it's a really, really good book. I'm looking forward to revisiting it in trade. I've read it in singles, but I am looking forward to sitting down and just devouring the trade in one go. I appreciate it. One of the things I hope you see, like we, we hope that you'll be able to pick up different clues and different foreshadowings on a, on a, on a reread that you might not have noticed on the first read. I'm excited to have a go at that because I think okay. it'll read it'll read a little bit differently in trade because it's all there laid out. So yeah. I'll I'll see how I go on that one. But um, yeah, uh, cool. I am very much looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to the next six issues. Thank There's you. no Thank doubt you. I will be completely surprised. <laughs> by what happens. I hope so. I hope so. And that's the best way to read a comic. Um, so thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. It's thank been you, really Matt. it's been really fun. I've enjoyed it. Um, okay. And yeah, I, can I just say, everyone, go and read The Good Asian. Go and get Please. the trade. Yes. Thank yeah. you.